Good morning. I don't know who it is that invented air conditioning, but I'm thankful. I'm thankful they did. How many of you remember what it was like living in a house and driving cars that had no air conditioning? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of you here. And, you know, and we kind of forget that, and we kind of take things for granted until we are in the middle of some heat and all, and then uh, we get flashbacks, and it's like, boy, I'm thankful for what we got today. And of course, while I say that, I know there's a couple of you sitting out here like, would they turn the thermostat up, you know, and uh, uh, I get that. I want to start off this morning by throwing a verse up on the screen that I think works well with the series of messages that Kurt started us into last Sunday. Um, it uh, helps to draw attention to the value of why we're doing what we're doing during this five-part series. It's Psalm 9, verse 10. It says, Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. What we're doing in this series is we're looking at a different name of God that is found in the Scripture. So we'll cover at least five. I would imagine there will be one or two more thrown in somewhere during the series. But, but we're looking at at least five of the names of God that are found in the Bible. And as we do that, I believe, and I think this is part of what this verse is communicating, I believe that what it will end up doing for for all of us who find ourselves as being followers of the Lord, uh, children of God, uh, it'll whet, whet our appetite to want to know him more. As we get to know him better, we'll want to know him more. Last Sunday, Kurt started the series with a message focused on the name Yahweh, the great I Am. Today, we're going to be looking at another name of God. The first time that it appears in the pages of the Bible, it is God speaking to a 99-year-old man. And uh, God basically informs him of this name. And it's the first time that we have any record of this name uh, being given. And of course, this 99-year-old man is a fellow named Abraham, although at the time, he was known as Abram. His name hadn't changed yet to Abraham. It's found here in Genesis chapter 17, the first verse. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. And uh, what, is, what is translated into God Almighty is the name that uh, we're given, and that's what we're going to be diving into in just a moment. But I think in order for us to really appreciate this, it would be worth our time to back up a step or two and to get a better appreciation for the backdrop of when and where and why God is, is informing Abraham of this particular name. And in backing up, we need to back up. It's a few chapters, but uh, we'll appreciate a little more knowing it's 24 years earlier. 
okay? So we're going back to Genesis chapter 12. This is when Abraham was 75 years old. And it says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. There's a couple things that God is, is laying out here as a promise to Abraham when he was 75 years old. One is that he was going to make Abraham into a great nation. Now, uh, the interesting part of that is that though Abraham was married, he had a wife, he had no children. Even though he's 75 years old, he had no children at this particular point in time. So, uh, so that's a rather significant statement to say that uh, God said that I'm going to make you into a great nation. And on top of that, God's promising that all peoples on earth are going to end up being blessed through you. Okay, so that is what Abraham heard when he was 75 years old. And we turn the page or two, and we come to Genesis chapter 15, and Abraham's got this idea of how all of this can be fulfilled. It's through his servant. He names his servant, uh, and this is his idea that, that through his servant, you know, all of this is going to end up playing out. And God's immediate response to that is, no, no, no. That's not the way this is going to go. You are going to have a son from your own body. It's not going to be your servant. And so God takes him outside. It's nighttime when he does this. He takes him outside. And he says, look up in the sky. You see all those stars? Count them for me. Well, of course, Abraham's not going to be able to quite do that because there's so many of them. But then God goes on and says, that's the way your descendants are going to be. They're going to be so numerous. And so God kind of reiterates the promise that was found in chapter 12. Now let's fast forward 10 years. And we're in Genesis chapter 16. Abraham is 85 years old at this point. The promise had been made 10 years earlier, but yet nothing really had happened. Um, Sarah had not conceived, so there was no child. And so Sarah now is coming up with an idea. She has the idea that her servant that she has had for a long time, her name is Hagar, that she, through Hagar, will have a child. So, so she presents the idea to Abraham that I want you to sleep with my servant, and then when she bears a child, basically I'm going to be adopting that child, and that child will be, you know, the fulfillment of this promise that has been given to us. And, uh, and sure enough, they do it. Abraham says, okay, sounds like a good plan. I, I don't know exactly how he said that, but I mean, how would you answer that? If your wife says, I want you to sleep with my servant and bear a child. And, but anyway, Abraham agrees to the idea. Um, and, uh, and sure enough, Hagar gets pregnant and she gives birth 
to a son, and they give him the name Ishmael. Uh, basically, what seems to be happening here in Genesis 16 is that Abraham and Sarah are thinking that God needs a little help. God had made the promise in Genesis 12. Ten years have passed. God needs a little bit of help in fulfilling all of this. And so that's why Ishmael, that's the result of their attempted help. Um, and this isn't good. Uh, even an angel of the Lord appears to Abraham and spells out to him, no, this isn't working the way you're hoping it's going to work. This is what is said about Ishmael in verse 12 of Genesis 16. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. And that not only was the case back in that era of time, but that's the case today. It continues to be in the Middle East where, where we see all the conflict you know, between, between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of eventually Isaac, you know, and, and how they're battling one another and don't like one another. Now we're ready for chapter 17, the verse that I started off with. And let me add the second verse to it this time. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now, I've underlined the words God Almighty because that is where El Shaddai is contained. It's the very first time in the pages of the Bible that El Shaddai is used. This, this name of God is used a total of 48 times in the Old Testament. And... Uh, um, um, Amy Grant is the one that popularized this. Some of you will remember that back in the early 80s where, you know, she sang a song with that as the title and, and, uh, and it was high on the charts, the Christian uh, music charts for, for quite a while. But El Shaddai typically is translated God Almighty. The word El means God and Shaddai in English, usually is translated almighty. Uh, it it kind of carries the idea of mountain with it too, but, that, but that's part of the visual, the picture here of power uh, is the mountain. Now, it's interesting, though, that though our English Bibles primarily translate El Shaddai as God almighty, um, the Jewish people back in 250 B.C., when they were translating the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, um, and that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls and all of that, you know, came to pass, the Septuagint and all that was back in that era of time. Um, the way they translated it is God the All-Sufficient One. So they used a slightly different word there. And so to, to appreciate what is behind this, I think we kind of need to encompass all of this, is that El Shaddai means God, the Almighty, the All-Sufficient One. So what impact does this end up having on Abraham when he hears it, when he receives it, when he believes it? Well, immediately the very next verse says, he fell on his face. 
I mean, just immediate. He humbled himself. Not so unlike the reaction that John the Apostle had, if you remember in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, when Jesus reveals himself in all of his glory in this vision. And what was John's response? He fell at his feet as though dead. It's a very, very similar type response. You know, studying these different names of God is like examining a multifaceted diamond. You know, each time we look at it from a slightly different angle, and what we're going to end up gaining is, is a new revelation in understanding about God in regards to his character, in regards to his strength, and that's a big part of what today is going to be, in regards to his heart, in regards to his compassion. We'll, we'll develop a fuller understanding of who God is. And as we unpack these names, we can't help but be humbled like Abraham was. We can't help but be humbled and to revere him and to be drawn toward him. Our word today conveys to us that God is more powerful than anything, than anything we've ever seen, than anything we've ever experienced. God revealed his name to Abraham um, in, in hopes to drive this thought home with Abraham. God didn't want Abraham and Sarah cooking up uh, some other kind of alternative approach of helping to bail God out of his promise that he had made 15 years earlier or 10 years earlier at the time that the whole Hagar thing played out. God wanted them to understand that he was fully capable of delivering on that promise. And that's part of the reason God revealed this name to Abraham. And it's part of the reason El Shaddai pops up in some of the places that it pops up throughout the Old Testament is because God is, is continuing to drive this home. Sarah needed to know this. You know, because Sarah was, was thinking, well, we need to do something drastic here. So let's take my servant lady, uh, and she's younger than me, and let's have her sleep with Abraham, and then we'll have a child. And, and Sarah was just really having a hard time, you know. And, and I think to some degree Abraham was, but especially Sarah. Look, look at the way she reacted. Um, in this is the next chapter, Genesis 18. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Okay, so the promise has been made more than once in the past, but now there's a time frame attached to it. It's going to be playing out in a year from now. God says, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind her. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? She probably figured that it was just kind of an inside chuckle. She wasn't going to embarrass or insult, you know, the guests that were out there speaking to uh, Abraham but the Lord sees all, the Lord knows all, and he picks up on this as well. So the next two verses say, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a, 
That's a rhetorical question, but it's a key statement in view of the fact that in the previous chapter, God had just revealed this name, El Shaddai, because you're going to find this kind of a statement found moving forward in the Bible over and over and over again. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And so anyway, the Lord says, I'll return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Is anything too hard from, uh, for the Lord? And the point is, uh, no, there's not anything. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. But Sarah needed to know this. She needed to be reminded of this. And so that's why it's playing out in chapter 18 like it is. But there are other times, like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is sometimes referred to as the weeping prophet. He's the one that writ the, wrote the longest book word for word, in the Bible, the book of Jeremiah, longer than any other book. And, uh, and it's kind of got a sad story to it. It's about the Babylonians. The Babylonians are, are defeating Israel and going to take them into captivity. And Jeremiah has the message of saying, go with it. You know, cooperate, surrender to them. And that was not popular. People did not, and they mistreated Jeremiah. You know, his own people did because they thought of him maybe as a traitor or something or other. Well, anyway, as this is all about to take place, then God prompts Jeremiah and says, I want you to buy some land. Now, this isn't really adding up in Jeremiah's mind because Jeremiah has been saying now for some time, God's message is, that we should surrender to the Babylonians, which, man, they, they were a brutal people, a world power at that time, and it just didn't make sense. But it's like the end is near. It's about to take place. But then God says, buy some property. And Jeremiah is like, why should I buy some property if we're going to be defeated and all of that? Well, look, look at the way it's stated. The Lord, um, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? This is after he had instructed Jeremiah to buy the property. And Jeremiah is just like in his mind, he, this doesn't add up. And then God just assuring him, trust me. Is anything too hard for me? And this is God's way of saying, you guys are going to be okay. And I'm going to be bringing you back to this land. The angel Gabriel appeared at a later time to uh, Mary. And remember, he, he told her that she was going to conceive and give birth, you know, to the Christ child. And, of course, she's kind of processing this in her head. She's never been with a man in that way. How is this all going to be possible? Well, Gabriel said this, for nothing is impossible with God. See, it's a message that comes up in multiple places of the Bible. Concepts like almighty and all-powerful, they're hard for our human minds. It's hard for us to really wrap our minds around that and to appreciate that um, because we typically think in regards to things that we've experienced or things that we've seen. And so when we think about the most powerful, um, mighty things that we've ever seen, you know, we think of, for example, um, Mother Nature, some natural disasters. We think about tornadoes, for example. The very first time I ever saw the devastation 
that was brought about by a tornado was when I was only five or six years old. Uh, Dad loaded, loaded us, four, four of us, um, David hadn't been born yet, loaded us into a car and mom as well shortly after this EF5 tornado you know, went through Topeka back in 1966. And we drove and we saw, you know, what we could see where they would allow us to drive. Um, and we saw the devastation. I had never seen anything like that. And here I was as a little kid, you know, and it's one of my, one of my earliest, not my earliest, but one of my earliest memories that I still carry today is just seeing the wreckage, seeing cars twisted, seeing houses just totally devastated. And I never even knew such a thing was possible, you know, uh, as a young little kid. But I was being exposed to it at that time. At a much later time, uh, in 2007, we had another EF5 tornado that took a small town in western Kansas and totally wiped it off the map, basically. Talking about Greensburg. And you remember, you know, when that happened, I had, I had a motorcycle ride, one of my week-long uh, motorcycle trips planned. And I, I actually was planning on coming back through that area. And, and so I was second-guessing that, that maybe I should avoid the area. But I decided, no, I'm going to go ahead and go through that area. And so not too long after that tornado, on my way back from Colorado, I went through Greensburg. And uh, they, they had the streets cleaned off you know, by then, so I was able to ride the bike around in, in the, the town. But that's what I saw. There was maybe a handful of buildings still standing, uh, some of them with some damage. Um, two of them maybe I didn't see any damage on. But for the most part, the tallest thing you saw were these uh, twisted remains of trees that were left. Houses totally wiped off their foundations, just total destruction you know, of what this tornado brought to pass. I also think about um, a hurricane, Katrina, a Category 5 hurricane that hit New, New Orleans in 2005. We've sent a couple of groups of people on mission trips following that to help New Orleans in, in rebuilding. Um, and I went on a trip that included uh, Ray Robinson, and always sat right down in this area, and and uh, some of you know Sean Hawkins, you know, he's a plumber. And, uh, and we went down there and we were working on this little old lady's house where three generations of her family were living. It was a very simple home, but it was just destruction. And the thing was, we were staying in an old church. Well, actually, it was a new church, but it looked now like an old church. Um, a mega church that had a bunch of bunk beds and stuff set up. And that's, that's where we were sleeping at night. And so as we would drive back and forth to the work site and then back to um, this place that we were staying, you know, we saw all kinds of stuff as we went every day to and from. And you would see huge boats in places that you don't see huge boats normally, you know, and cockeyed and leaning up against buildings in weird ways. And just, yeah, it was just a reminder of, of how powerful the, the storm surge was and, and the wind and all of that. 
coming from that hurricane. So when we think about something being powerful and mighty, that's generally where our mind goes. It's the closest thing that we can grasp is what in our experience kind of matches that. And we think about some of the natural disasters. But the point that is made in Scripture is that God is more powerful than all the forces of nature. God is more powerful than all of that. And in a very close-up way, the disciples learned this firsthand. In Mark chapter 4, they were crossing the Sea of Galilee, and this big storm kicked up. Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat, and uh, the boat, I mean, they all feel like they're about to drown. They're going to be capsized in the middle of all this. And so they wake Jesus up. Don't you care? We're all about to drown. Jesus stood up, and you remember what he said. He said, be still. And all of a sudden, the wind and the waves calmed down. Then Jesus looked at them and said, oh, ye of little faith. But what was their response? You remember their response? I mean, I'm sure their eyes were wide open as they were looking at Jesus. But the words that are recorded there in Mark chapter 4 is that they start saying, who is this guy? Who is he? Now, they had already spent some time with him. And so they probably, when they climbed into the boat, they probably thought they were getting a pretty good handle of who Jesus was. And now all of a sudden they experience this and they're just like taken back, like thinking, whoa, who is he? He's more powerful than a storm. He can stop it just like that. And this is, this is the image. This is what is the message is that is conveyed in the Bible. I told you that earlier that El Shaddai is found 48 times in the Old Testament. What might surprise you is where 31 of those references are found. They're found in one book. 31 of the references. And of all books, it's the book of Job. 31 times in Job, El Shaddai, as the name of God, is used. Hey, you know the story of Job. Job lost everything, everything that was dear to him. He lost his livestock. He lost um, all those that were working for him. He lost his children. He lost his health. He lost everything. I mean, it was bad. It was major league bad. And then it got worse. It got much worse. And then it got absolutely unbearable. And he was just in pain you know, and, and just scraping his sores with broken pieces of pottery. He was in, in a bad way. And in his pain, he's just trying to find some answers. He's just trying to connect the dots to try to understand what it is that's happening and, and why all of this pain he was experiencing. And, and when you read through Job, I don't know about you, but for me, it's a painful read. I read through that and I see raw emotion coming from Job in, in view of what it was that he was experiencing. Well, eventually, God answers. You have to go through quite a few chapters before you get to that point, like 37 chapters. But, but eventually, God answers Job. But the answer isn't what Job was anticipating. It wasn't what you know crossed his mind could possibly be God's response. Instead of God giving a direct response to Job... God, he does give his longest speech that is found anywhere in the Bible. Chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. All of that 
is God talking. He's talking to Job. And it's mainly made up of a series of questions. Instead of informing Job about a lot of stuff, he's just asking basically what ends up being rhetorical question after rhetorical question after rhetorical question. Let me just read this portion of it. It's only the very beginning of what God has to say, but it does help set the tone. It says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Um, Who marked off the dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Oh, what were its footings set on? Or who um, laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Well, Job couldn't answer any of that stuff. I mean, there's rhetorical questions. There's sarcasm, you know, a degree of sarcasm that's, that's found in all that, but, but God's getting a very, a very direct point across to Job, saying, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know, you know, the big picture of all of this. And, and it's true, Job, he didn't understand. He didn't get a direct answer from God. But, but in the end, Job, he trusts God. Look, look at right in the middle of all, look at one of the things God said. The Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? There, that's El Shaddai. With El Shaddai, he who argues with God, let him answer it. And so after Job heard all of this, Job's response, the beginning of his response, is found in chapter 42. Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things. Now, doesn't that sound familiar, you know, in view of the other passages that we looked at a few minutes ago? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job's eyes are being opened up. He's beginning to understand. He, he, he doesn't understand why, the why of it all, but he's beginning to understand God better. As a matter of fact, if you go just three verses later, and I don't have a slide for this, but it would be worth your while to, to look and maybe circle and, and perhaps memorize verse 5 uh, because that may become a very meaningful verse for you in your life is that part of the conclusion that Job makes in view of all this and when he hears God asking all these questions, Job says, I had heard about you but now my eyes have seen you. And that's Job's way of, of saying, I thought I knew who you were, but not like I do now. I see you in a whole new light, and you are much bigger than I ever would have guessed. I mean, that's basically what he's communicating. How did things turn out for Abraham and Sarah? Well, this is what Genesis goes on and says in chapter 21. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. 
Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And so what we're seeing here is that God is able to accomplish whatever he says. It's not just that God is more powerful than anything. I mean, that is embedded in the name El Shaddai. But it's the fact that, that God revealed this on an occasion that he also wanted to reveal that he's able to accomplish whatever he promises he's going to accomplish. Whatever he says he's going to accomplish, he can deliver on it. And that was the big thing he wanted Abraham and Sarah to have an understanding on. And I think that's part of the whole thing back with Jeremiah, the comments I made about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was instructed right before Babylon was going to lower the boom on Israel. Um, and then God says, Jeremiah, buy some land. And it's like, okay, that's a weird instruction right now at this point in time. But, but uh, Jeremiah needed to understand something. And so we read this in Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Oh, Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power. And with your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. See, he got the point across to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was beginning to understand as well. Nothing, as, as unlikely as it might seem, to buy land right when you're getting ready to be defeated by the world's most powerful army, um, it, it just doesn't add up. But Jeremiah began to see God in a whole new light and to appreciate uh, what, what he didn't understand before. Let's talk a little bit about promises because I think that's, that's part of why God was revealing this name um, to um, Abraham and Sarah and later to Job and to Jeremiah and to numerous other individuals in the Old Testament. We live in a world of broken promises. And I don't need to start giving statistics, but it's illustrated in a number of ways. One of the typical ways that preachers illustrate it is to talk about marriages and the divorce rate and how frequently the vows and promises that are made, you know, end up being, being uh, broken and tossed by the wayside. Without knowing statistics, you know how commonplace that is. In fact, it's becoming more and more common for people just to totally bypass the whole thing about marriage and, and you know, to, to approach just living together and, and just, you know, avoiding that side of it, you know, entirely. But we see the divorce rates. We hear about the foreclosures that go on. We, every, every time an election comes around, we hear the politicians making promise after promise after promise of what they're going to do if you will just give them their vote. And, uh, and then time after time after time, we see a lack of that, the carry through, the follow through in regards to so many of those promises. Think about the myriad of commercials and infomercials attempting to promise this or that or everything else if you'll just buy their product, and then you go ahead and buy their product, and it's not anything close to what it is that you had been sold on originally. Is it any wonder that we tend to become skeptical whenever we hear someone making a claim that sounds too good to be true. 
And it's not. The year that Colette and I moved here and, and to start Crossroads, it was 1994. There was a fellow, we didn't know him. He, he wasn't, you know, that far away. He lived down south in Illinois. Um, but, but we had never known him. As far as I know, I'd never crossed paths with him. He was a 67-year-old carpenter. His name was Russell Herman, and he passed away that year when we moved here. And in his will, it stated several things, uh, pretty attention-grabbing things. He was leaving $2.4 billion to a nearby town. Another $2.4 billion to the city of East St. Louis. He was living, leaving $1.5 billion for projects in southeastern Illinois. And as a final act of generosity, he was going to uh, give the rest of his money, $6 trillion, to the Federal Reserve to pay off the national debt. Back in those days, that would have actually paid off the national debt. Now it would only do a smaller percentage of the national debt. There was only one problem to all of this. At the time of his death, the only thing Russell Herman actually owned was a 1983 Oldsmobile. And that was it. He didn't have any money. And so all of these lofty, you know, promises and, and expressions of generosity, uh, obviously none of it came to pass. Listen, a promise is only as good as the person making the promise. And that's something that we learn in life, right? I mean, you can hear certain people, you know, make claims and promise this or that. And, you know, what, what we have an expression for that. Uh, you got to take, if it's coming from them, you got to take that with a grain of salt, you know. Um, that's another way of just saying, yeah, right. You know, it's, it's not going to happen. A promise is only as good as the person making the promise. The question you've got to ask is, what is the track record of the one that's making the promise? Have they been true to their word in times past? And see, this is where God really shines. Because when we look in Scripture, we see that he has been true to his word. Joshua was an old man when he said this in Joshua 23. Pay attention, because I will soon die like everyone else. You know with all your heart and soul that not one single promise which the Lord your God has given you has ever failed to come true. Every single word has come true. Every good word the Lord your God has promised you has come true for you. This is what Joshua was saying, you know, as he was about ready to die. He has spent his life either beside Moses or leading the people of Israel. And this is what his conclusion was at the end of his life. Um, a fellow named Solomon, he built the first uh, semi-permanent temple instead of it being a tabernacle which was basically a tent uh, now the the house of God was going to be this structure in Jerusalem the temple and and when Solomon was dedicating it Solomon said this in first Kings chapter 8 may the Lord be praised he has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has said not one of all the good promises he made through his servant Moses, has failed. 
You go in the New Testament further, you find in Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold firmly to the hope that we have confessed because we can trust God to do what he's promised. I like the way Dwight Moody, you know, said it. He said it like this. God never made a promise that was too good to be true. God's track record is impeccable. The very first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew, and you know how that starts, at least a number of you do, because I've heard comments. You know, it's like, why does that have to be there in the Bible? It starts with a genealogy. It's just a list of people that beget so-and-so, and depending on what translation, you'll get certain terminology. But, but it's just people that, that fathered so-and-so, and then they fathered so-and-so, and then they fathered so-and-so. And it's just a long list. Now, some people will, will say, oh, there's great value of that because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and genealogies are really important to the Jewish people, and, and they are. Um, and you know, I wouldn't argue against that, that, that Matthew was doing that, because another characteristic of the gospel of Matthew is that that gospel has more quotes from the Old Testament than any of the other gospels, which the Jewish people, they would have valued the scripture, what we call the Old Testament, that was their scripture. And so Matthew quoted from it numerous times. And so, yeah, Matthew probably was written primarily for a Jewish audience. But the reality is that, that there's something of real value to non-Jewish people too, which most of us fall into that category. Because there is value even in reading the genealogy in getting the message across, God keeps his promises. Because some 2,000 years earlier, God had said to an old man, you are going to have a child. And in fact, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky. And God delivered on that promise. And those opening verses of Matthew chapter 1 is a reminder of that fact that God keeps his promises. God delivers in a world of, uh, that is filled with broken promises God can be counted on. So there you go. El Shaddai, the almighty, the all-sufficient one, is what that name means. He is more powerful than anything, and he's able to accomplish whatever he says. That's all tied in to this particular name of God. I was reading about a plane that was crossing the Atlantic Ocean and a lot of passengers on the plane, good-sized plane, and they were about halfway across and the captain um, got over the intercom system and said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I regret to inform you that we just lost one of our engines, but never fear, we still have three engines that are functioning fine and they will get us to our destination. But I regret to inform you, we're going to be an hour late because of this. A few minutes later, the captain got on the intercom system again and said, ladies and gentlemen, I need to inform you, we just lost our second engine, but we still have two engines and we can definitely get to our destination uh, with two engines, but we're going to be at least two hours late. A few minutes later, the captain came over again and said, 
Ladies and gentlemen, you can guess what I'm getting ready to tell you. We just lost our third engine, but at our altitude, we can surely get to our destination with one engine. Uh, only now we're going to be at least three hours late. It was at that moment in time one of the irritated passengers shouted out, For Pete's sake, if we lose another engine, we'll be up here all night. Maybe, maybe you're like that plane, and you've been losing power, and it's been happening for some time. You know, you look back over your shoulder at the way things used to be, whether that was five years ago or whether that was 25 years ago. You look back at the way things used to be, and you're just like, man, I'm just, I, I've just got one engine left, you know, and, and the others aren't functioning in the way that they used to. Maybe you feel like, like that describes you. Well, I've got some good news for you, even in spite of that. As a child of God, the scripture gives us promises. Like Ephesians chapter three, it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us. By the way, that word power comes from the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get the English word dynamite. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just look at the superlatives that are found in that passage when it says, uh, to him who is able to do far more, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. Some translations use the word imagine there. What we can even imagine. You know, he's able to do more than even what we imagine. That verse doesn't give any footnotes about, well, unless your circumstances are such and such. It doesn't say that. It's saying this is who it is. That is empowering us. This is who it is that we've placed our trust in. And he can do far more than we can even imagine. He's that powerful. He's that big of a God. It doesn't matter how old you might feel that you are or how tired you might feel that you are. El Shaddai, he can take you further than you ever dreamed. He can take you further than you ever imagined. You may be thinking, yeah, but I don't feel like I'm able. That's just it. It's not dependent on you being able. It's the fact that he is able. And that's the promise we have from El Shaddai. I want you to reflect on that during our time of communion. We're going to spend some time here, and, and you should have your communion cups now. If you don't, you can, you can get one of those either on one of these little tables or out in the entry area. But while we take the bread and we eat it and we take the, the juice and we drink it, we need to be reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus and how he paid that ultimate price that is able to free us from all sin. And you say, yeah, but you, you don't understand. 
how big my sin is. You don't, you don't understand how painful my sin has been, not just to myself, but to others as well. The fact of the matter is, God is able. And through what Jesus accomplished by going to the cross, forgiveness and reserving a place in glory with him, God's able to deliver on all of that. And so while you share in this time of reflecting on what Jesus has done on your behalf, just reflect on the fact he's able to deliver. He promised and he will deliver. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and for the reminder. And having this refreshed in our memories is a good thing. Because as we live life and we experience the ups and the downs, uh, sometimes we get to where we can feel defeated. We can feel like it's too much for us, that we can't keep plugging away. We've got to throw in the towel. But Lord, in view of what your word has to say, we know that it's not just a matter of us having what's needed to get through it. It's the fact that you have what's needed to bring us through it, whatever it is we're experiencing. We celebrate that today. El Shaddai, we worship you for being our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.